It's Monday, April 15th, and today I'm beginning a three-part series where I will unpack and explain something that I need each of you to understand. Police brutality is legal in this country. It is. It is functionally legal in the United States for the police to be brutal. Yes, we need good district attorneys. Yes, we need good juries. Yes, police departments need to change a hundred different features of how they police. But until we address this deeper core issue of the legality of their brutality, it's my belief that much of our fight against it will be in vain. Some problems take more than one episode for us to unpack. So this is the first of a three-part series on why police brutality is legal in the United States. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The, the, the Breakdown. Over the past five years, I've written over 1,500 articles about injustice in America. I've studied thousands of cases of police violence, and I've worked directly with hundreds and hundreds of families that have experienced it firsthand. And even though most media outlets have stopped telling these stories, police brutality is as deadly as it's ever been in the entire history of the country. Do you know why? For all intents and purposes, police brutality is legal in America. Police policy manuals may discourage it, and communities across the country may absolutely despise it. But the bottom line is that our courts are condoning it, and they do so each and every time officers who brutalize people are set free. And the list of people unjustly killed by American police is long. It doesn't have dozens of names. It has thousands and thousands of names. Over the past 10 years alone, Over 10,000 men, women, and children have been killed by American police. In many developed nations, over the same period of time, police have killed fewer than 100 people. In some nations, police have not killed a single person in an entire generation. American police, on average, kill at least three people per day. Sometimes it's many, many more. Sometimes it's as many as 12 or 13 people a day. And conservatives and liberals alike seem to at least agree that most police departments have a few bad apples. But the bottom line is that nearly none of those bad apples, including the most egregious, heinous, despicable officers in the country, none of them are being held accountable for their repeated crimes against humanity. The officers who killed Tamir Rice come to mind. The officer who shot and killed Rakia Boyd in Chicago comes to mind. The cop who killed Ezel Ford in Los Angeles comes to mind. The cops who killed Alton Sterling and Philando Castile come to mind. The officer who killed Eric Garner comes to mind. Even in the worst cases, the bad apples still aren't facing justice. And what I'm about to say are the clearest, most unmistakable words I've ever used on police brutality. Two Supreme Court cases, Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor, have effectively legalized police brutality. And police brutality will continue to remain fully legal until those cases are confronted head on. Over the next three days, I'm going to break these cases down for us and then give us some clear action items that we can take and give us some solutions that we can build together so that we can fight back. And until we do this, justice will be exceedingly rare, no matter how hard we fight. Today I need to tell you a story that's at the center of why police brutality is legal in America. 
This story is adapted from two articles that I originally wrote for the New York Daily News during my time as the senior justice writer there. On the night of October 3, 1974, 15-year-old Edward Garner, an unarmed, 110-pound black middle school student in Memphis, Tennessee, was accused of stealing a wallet with $10 in it. When Memphis police officer Elton Hyman spotted Edward climbing a fence to get away, the officer shot Edward in the head and killed him. He had no reason to believe that Edward had a gun. The officer didn't see a gun. Edward was, in fact, unarmed. He had no reason to believe that Edward was a physical threat to anyone. Edward was a tiny boy. In fact, the theft was a misdemeanor, but young Edward Garner basically received the death penalty over it. Of course, this was an unjust response to such a petty crime. But at the time, Tennessee had a law dating all the way back to slavery in 1858, as did 20 other states, which made it fully legal for a police officer to shoot a fleeing suspect in order to effect an arrest. Edward's father, Clem T. Garner, was, of course, outraged and crushed. His son made a mistake, but it shouldn't have cost him his life. For months, then years, Clem T. Garner fought the Memphis Police Department and the state of Tennessee with everything he had just to get some semblance of justice for his son. He relentlessly sued the city of Memphis. He sued the mayor of Memphis. He sued the officer that was involved. He sued the Memphis Police Department, all on grounds that his son's rights were violated and that the use of deadly force against his son wasn't just excessive, it was extreme. It became the singular mission of Clem T. Garner to get some type of justice for his son. He spent every dime and every free bit of time he had on this case. A full nine years later, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, a federal body, sided with Mr. Garner and ruled that the 120-year-old law that allowed the officer to shoot and kill his son should be struck down immediately because it violated the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable seizures. Edward's father won an enormous victory. It was covered at the time as a huge victory in the fight against police brutality. Up to that point, it was virtually unheard of for a black family to win a legal victory against the police department. Interestingly, though, the current U.S. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito who wasn't on the Supreme Court at the time, he was just an attorney in the Reagan administration, wrote a very strong 15-page brief arguing that the circuit court had made the wrong decision and that police should be able to shoot fleeing suspects like Edward Garner. Emboldened by Alito's paper, the city of Memphis decided to appeal the ruling all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Eleven years after young Edward Garner was first shot and killed by a Memphis police officer over a wallet with $10 in it, the U.S. Supreme Court took the case. That case is Tennessee versus Garner. And in it, the majority of the Supreme Court ruled that the Sixth Circuit Court was actually right. They were right to strike down the Tennessee law permitting the police officer to shoot and kill young Edward Garner. The decision was widely celebrated by the legal community and the civil rights community, and they all believed it was a huge victory for victims and families who fought against police brutality. Now, I'm about to get super wonky for a second 
and read you some of the beautiful parts of the Tennessee versus Garner decision that were widely celebrated. In Tennessee versus Garner, the Supreme Court ruled that shooting a fleeing suspect dead is indeed constitutionally unreasonable. And here's how they said why. They leaned on the Fourth Amendment. I'm going to read some of their decision to you. It says, quote, The intrusiveness of a seizure by means of deadly force is unmatched. The suspect's fundamental interest in his own life need not be elaborated upon. The use of deadly force also frustrates the interest of the individual and of society in judicial termination of guilt and punishment. Against these interests are ranged governmental interests in effective law enforcement. We are not convinced that the use of deadly force is a sufficiently productive means of accomplishing them to justify the killing of nonviolent suspects. And they continued. Let me read some more. Quote, The use of deadly force to prevent the escape of a felony suspect, whatever the circumstances, is constitutionally unreasonable. It is not better that all felony suspects die than they escape. Where the suspect poses no immediate threat to the officer and no threat to others, the harm resulting from failing to apprehend him does not justify the use of deadly force to do so. It is no doubt unfortunate when a suspect who is in sight escapes, but the fact that police arrive a little late or are a little slower afoot does not always justify killing the suspect. It continues and it says, a police officer may not seize an unarmed, non-dangerous suspect by shooting him dead. The Tennessee statute is unconstitutional insofar as it authorizes the use of deadly force against such fleeing suspects. What I just read to you, it was worth celebrating when it was released. The Supreme Court flat out said that it's simply not justifiable for police to take the life of a fleeing suspect just so that they can arrest them. In fact, If you shoot and kill a suspect, the Supreme Court said, you can't arrest them. The Supreme Court, with Thurgood Marshall being a primary voice in the matter, made it clear that young Edward Garner should not have been shot and killed, that it was wrong, and that killing him violated his constitutional rights. And 99% of the entire decision was like this. It went on and on and on about the value of human life the value of being able to have your moment in court, the value of a fair process of justice. But then, in the middle of the decision, was a poison pill. Just one sentence. In fact, really just one word that would forever change the course of what police would say and do to justify their shootings. Let me read you that one sentence from the decision. It says this, quote, where the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a threat of serious physical harm, either to the officer or to others, it is not constitutionally unreasonable to prevent escape by deadly force. Do you want to guess what the single word in that sentence is that's caused so many problems? Let me read it to you again. Where the officer has probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a threat of serious physical harm, either to the officers or to others, it is not constitutionally unreasonable 
to prevent escape by using deadly force. The word there is believe. It's damn near impossible to disprove. The Supreme Court said that if the officer believes a suspect poses a serious threat to them or to others, that deadly force is permissible. Believe is an impossible word because how can we ever prove what the officer did or did not believe in the moment? They only have to tell us that they believe something. Unless we have some type of evidence that they were lying, some rare recording where they said they didn't actually believe it, proving otherwise is as rare as winning the lottery. With each passing year since this decision was made, police officers have grown more and more creative in shaping their own narratives and excuses for brutality to fit within the lines defined by that one single sentence of Tennessee versus Garner. It states, in essence, that police can use deadly force on a suspect if the officer has been threatened with a weapon or if they have cause to believe that the suspect has committed or will commit a violent crime unless the officer intervenes with deadly force. What looked like a victory for those fighting against police brutality was actually a neutron bomb that would destroy thousands of cases of legitimate instances of police violence. By introducing belief, which apparently does not actually have to be rooted in fact, by introducing belief into what police are allowed to claim, it is now nearly impossible to prove what officers did or did not believe. The burden of proof to refute the claims of what an officer says he or she believes is so outrageously high that pretty much the only thing that can contradict it is a recording or a testimony of some type in which it's proven that the officer did not believe that they were in danger and that they were only faking the belief for the sake of the legal case against them. And today, officers are being trained to never make that mistake. Consequently, once an officer claims that they believe they were in danger or that the community was in danger, that case and any case like it, is probably dead in the water. For instance, the officer who killed Philando Castile, the officer who killed Amadou Diallo or Walter Scott or Tamir Rice or John Crawford, and hundreds of others, they each claimed that they believed they were in grave danger when they shot and killed their victims. Now, they weren't in danger, but that's not what Tennessee versus Garner requires. It simply requires that the officer reasonably believes that danger was a real possibility. Amadou Diallo could not have shot four NYPD officers with his wallet, but that didn't matter because the officers sufficiently convinced the court that they believed his wallet was a gun and that if they didn't shoot him immediately, that they could all be shot and killed. Never mind that Amadou had never touched a gun a day in his life or that he was a sweet and peaceful man. Tennessee versus Garner doesn't care about that. If an officer believes something, they are empowered to use lethal force as an extension of that belief. The facts do not even have to back up that belief. And that one sentence about the belief of an officer from that Supreme Court decision is the modern framework for police brutality in America. Tomorrow I'm going to share with you a new case, Graham versus Connor that actually doubled down on Tennessee versus Garner. And I need you to understand these two cases. First off, because I want you to understand why even the worst cops keep getting let off. 
But the real reason I need you to understand them is because on Wednesday, I'm going to tell you what I think we should do about the break. Thank you all for making it all the way through this episode of The Breakdown. We're not just here to change the news. We're here to change the world. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, we'll be right back here every single weekday, breaking down important news stories and issues. And we'd love for you to subscribe here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Our next big goal is to have 100,000 subscribers, and we're not going to get there without you. Have you left a review yet? If not, please leave your best review when you get some time. Thank you so much to the nearly 30,000 founding members of the North Star whose generosity even makes this podcast possible. We love and appreciate each of you so very much. If you love this podcast and you want to support our work or you want to see the show notes and transcripts of each episode, we'd love it if you'd consider becoming a founding member of our community. And you can do that at thenorthstar.com. Again, go to thenorthstar.com. There we not only have our podcast, but hundreds of original articles and stories and commentaries from some of the leading scholars and thinkers in the world. Lastly, a shout out to our podcasting director and senior producer Willis for his hard work on this and every episode. Take care, everybody.